0: Well, let me ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me as this morning we continue our series through the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I also encourage you, if you would, to take your bulletin and turn there on page 5. And you'll see an outline for our time together this morning. While you're turning, I want to say thank you to Les uh, for filling in so ably last week. Uh, I, 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 the general consensus I heard from people is, man, that guy just keeps getting better. And that's, please know, that's the ultimate compliment, right? Uh, you don't want to be like, yeah, he sort of peaked and now it's not no. Uh, the goal always is to keep making progress and to keep, Lord willing, uh, growing as a as a preacher. And so grateful to Les for filling in and grateful for the progress uh, that he's making. Also, I'm very grateful for your prayers this past week. Uh, it was a strange week. It was strange, first of all, to not be in church on Sunday, uh, but instead to be in a coffee shop in Medford, Oregon. Uh, and then it was also uh, sending Nathaniel off was strange, good, uh, but strange. I don't want to do it again, uh, but we'll we'll take what we have and, and thank the Lord for that. So um, Luke chapter five, beginning in verse one, and we'll read through verse 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now, as we look to your word, we were reminded in Sunday school that every time we look to your word, the word of God judges us. It, it, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. And so, Father, we come, uh, I pray this morning expectantly, but Father, we come also knowing that we don't sit in judgment over your word, rather your word sits in judgment over us. And so we are grateful this morning that your word to us is a word of grace, Your word to us is the word of this new community that the Lord Jesus is forming through His word. We pray these things now in His name. Amen. So, what is a Christian? Can the definition of being a Christian vary from individual to individual? It can mean one thing to this person, but something entirely different to someone else. Is it ever appropriate to say, well, being a Christian means to me, and we fill in the blank. Are we free to simply pick and choose certain aspects of the Christian faith and then disregard others? In our text for this morning, we see Jesus calling his first disciples. Last week, Les walked you through a text in which we were able to see the power of Christ's word over the destructive powers of sin in our fallen world. But now we see Jesus' words forming a community of people who are going to follow him. And it's in that calling, in that forming, That we see this community has very particular characteristics. In fact, they are defining characteristics. Now on page 5 in your bulletin, you see there the big idea. The big idea, hopefully, is in one sentence what the sermon is about this morning. So here it is. Jesus invites us into a community with defining characteristics. Jesus invites us into a community with defining characteristics. Now, before we look at the four points this morning, let's note right off the bat that this list that we have in Luke chapter 5 is not exhaustive. Yes, he's going to give us four characteristics. They are characteristics that very much define what it means to be a Christian, but this is not an exhaustive list. For example, in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, that in order to be his follower, you must be born again. Well, Jesus doesn't mention the work of the Holy Spirit in this passage at all. Nothing is said about the necessity of the new birth, and yet we know, as we read the New Testament, we understand that being born again is absolutely crucial to being able to call oneself a Christian. Now, we also want to think about this text in terms of uh, the work that we've been doing so far in Luke's gospel, for we've understood that the melodic line of the gospel as a whole is that the gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your vocation. It doesn't matter your status. The gospel is for everyone. But that doesn't mean that everyone is going to respond rightly to the gospel. You don't have to be a particular gender. You don't have to be a particular ethnic group. You don't have to have a particular status within society in order to be a Christian, in order to be enter into this particular community. But that does not mean that everyone is going to. When we say the gospel is for everybody it doesn't mean then that necessarily everybody is saved. Rather, we're going to see this morning what it looks like to respond right to Jesus' invitation to this particular community. Four things we want to see this morning then first. The first defining characteristic is that we listen to Jesus. We listen to Jesus. Jesus at this point has a very popular ministry. He's known all over. He's the one who does all these fantastic miracles. He's performed all these great signs. Just last week, we saw him heal a man with a demon, and we saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus possesses a kind of power that the world has never seen. And it's not, though, it's not just that Jesus came to do these wonderful signs and perform these great acts. But we learned at the end of the text this last week that Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Why? I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus' primary understanding of his own ministry is that he has come to proclaim and to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. His ministry primarily is a ministry of the word. And so here's Jesus' teaching. His ministry draws draws a great crowd. And as they're starting to press in on him, he decides, hey, I have this wonderful natural amphitheater behind me. I just need to be able to access it. And so it's morning. The fishermen have come in from their night of fishing. They're tired. They're fixing their nets. But he says to Simon Peter, hey, you owe me one. I healed your mother-in-law. I need to borrow your boat. And so he does. He gets into his boat, he goes out uh, just a small distance, and now suddenly Jesus has a wonderful pulpit as well as sort of built-in amplification. If you've ever been on a lake, you know that sound carries across the water. So Jesus begins to teach. He begins to preach. And as he does so, we see that the word of God begins to create the people of God. Let me say that again. It's the word of God that creates the people of God. One of the things that's going to be true of this community is that this community both hears God's word, but it also seeks to do it. It seeks to be obedient In that way, it's going to be very different from the people of God in the Old Testament. In the text that Rebecca read for us this morning, we saw that in in Isaiah's call to ministry, and this is the part we often skip, right? We we have this fantastic vision of God. We have God saying, who will I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah saying in this wonderful way, oh, here am I, send me. And typically at missionary commissioning services, that's where we stop. Isn't it great? We're sending all these missionaries out. That's fantastic. But then we get, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Keep your finger, if you would, in Luke 5, but turn back with me to Isaiah, to the passage that Rebecca read for us. In Isaiah chapter 6, God gives this commission to Isaiah beginning in verse 9. After Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I'm, I'm, I'm your huckleberry God, got my passport, let's go to work. Here's what God says to him, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of his people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. See, God's people are always supposed to be people of the book. God's people are always supposed to be those who hear the word of God and respond rightly. God's people are supposed to be those who, when we come to God's word, not only do we seek to hear it, but we want to obey what it is that we hear. We are, in essence, book people. But in commissioning Isaiah, God says, hey, listen, here's the deal. You're going to go and you're going to proclaim my word to them. And guess what? They're not going to listen. We saw the same thing in Jeremiah this morning. God has commissioned Jeremiah with a very particular message. But his people are not going to listen to what it is that God has to say. And so part of this new community, one of the defining characteristics of this new community that Jesus is forming is that we are actually people who listen to God's word. And we don't just listen in the sense of, well, those are some nice thoughts. I'll put them in my back pocket. I'll keep them for a rainy day. No, we're both hearers, but we're also doers of the word. So let me ask you this morning, how are your listening skills? The guys in the room just got very uncomfortable because most men, of course, have selective listening. I do. But how are your listening skills? If you claim to be a Christian, have you tuned the ability to actually listen to God's word. Or let me put it another way. How are your reading skills? I know that's a little unfair because we live in a culture more and more that doesn't read. We skim. We treat every text we come across like it's the, uh, like it's the owner's manual to your VCR and you're trying to figure out how to program the clock on. But friends, if we are really part of this community that Jesus is forming, then we must be people who listen attentively. We must be people who are careful readers. We must be people who understand that at the heart of our relationship with the God who created all things is his word. I love the words of Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, hey, to his students, hey, I want you to be conversant with a great number of books, but I want you to live in one. I want you to live in the Bible. May that be true of us, that we are indeed listening to Jesus. Well, here's the second characteristic. The second characteristic of this community that Jesus is forming is that we turn away from sin. Jesus has done preaching, and immediately he turns to Medlin. For Jesus tells Peter and his crew, having just mended all their nets, having taken care of everything that needs to be taken care of before they can go home, have their breakfast, and get some sleep, Jesus says to them, hey, uh, why don't you take your boats back out and put your nets in the deep? Now, this is entirely the wrong time of day to be fishing. On the Sea of Galilee, the fishermen fished at night. That's when the fish were most active. And so if you wanted to actually catch a fish, you needed to fish at night. And so Peter, understandably, responds to Jesus in verse 5. Master, we toiled all night. It took nothing. This wasn't a casual night of, well, let's go over here and throw our net out and see. And, oh, no, nothing there. Well, let's try over here by this rock. And, oh, no, oh, a fish jumped over there. Let's try that. No. They have done the work of fishermen all night. And he says, we took nothing. But he goes on to say, at your word, I will let down the nets. He does that, verse 6, and all of a sudden a large number of fish, so much so that the nets begin to break. They signal to their partners. Their partners come over. They're helping them. And there's so much fish that both boats are filled and they begin to sink. And instead of jumping up and down and thanking Jesus for making their entire fiscal year, note how it is that... Simon Peter responds in verse 8. He falls down at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Huh. That's not really the response that we were looking for. It's not the response, honestly, that we would have anticipated. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter sees this miraculous catch of fish and from there goes into repentance, confesses the fact that he is indeed a sinful man. Now, some scholars want to suggest to us that what's going on is uh, that because Peter, instead of just saying, yep, okay, I'm going, good is done. That instead of doing that, Peter says, hey, wait a minute, we toiled all night. Uh, Jesus, look, we're going to leave the teaching to you. We're going to leave the preaching to you. We're going to leave the casting out of demons and all these other things to you. But listen, we we know fishing. Why don't you leave that to us? And so there are some scholars who think that first part of verse 5 is why Simon Peter is aware of his sinfulness. Let me just say this respectfully. I think they're wrong. I think what's going on here is exactly paralleled by what Rebecca read for us this morning in Isaiah chapter 6. When the glory and the grandeur and the majesty of the Lord Jesus is displayed in this miracle, Peter is immediately aware of the fact that he is a sinner. In other words, when Peter sees Jesus for who he really is, he knows for the first time, in a very real way, his own sin. He understands that he is not God. He, like the prophet Isaiah before before him, who sees the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Do you remember what Isaiah's first response was? Woe is me, for I am ruined. You see, this community that Jesus is forming is going to see his glory. They're going to understand who he really and truly is. They're going to grasp that He is the Creator, that He is the Son of God. They're going to see the power and the might. They're going to see the suffering. They're going to see the anguish. And when they see those things, their response is going to be to repent. Their response is going to be to turn away from their sin. They're going to understand that there is a God and they are not Him the way it is with us. When we see God's glory, when we see the grandeur and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we understand fully the depth of our own sin and our own shortcomings. Sometimes I think people think that uh, part of being a Christian means that you have this very highly developed sense of moral right and wrong. And there are these rules that you have to follow. And so being a Christian means that you don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. And we have these kinds of things. And that's that's what it means, right? That's what it means to be a Christian. Well, friends, Jesus is teaching us this morning that the defining characteristic of being a part of his community, of being a Jesus follower, isn't this sense of, uh, I'm keeping all these moral things, I'm doing them rightly? Rather, the defining characteristic is that we are people who are really good at repenting. And we're really good at repenting because we're really good at sinning. So this idea that somehow being a Christian means I've got my act together all the time, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, God likes me. No. No. Being a Christian means we've seen the glory and the grandeur and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we're not Him. And compared to God, we understand all that we have to repent of. You're not comparing your life to someone else. You're not grading on a curve. But rather, having seen the glory, having seen the absolute perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know you're not perfect And you are very much in need of repentance. Martin Luther famously said, the first part of the Christian life is repentance. The second part of the Christian life is repentance. And the third and last part of the Christian life is repentance. Peter gets a glimpse of the grandeur and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's driven to repent. Thirdly, we then fish for men. We then fish for men. One of the arguments that all the Gospels are making is that Jesus is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, he is also the Messiah. To say that one is the Messiah in first century Israel would have been rife with all kinds of political expectations. The Messiah was coming, not necessarily to save us from our sins, but the Messiah was coming to save us from Rome. The Messiah was coming to restore the Davidic kingship, not to restore us to a right relationship with God. And so when Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid, verse 10, from now on you will be catching men. Jesus makes it clear that his mission is not to overthrow governments. I mean, can you imagine if you, if you are a beleaguered Jew and you're living under Roman occupation, you're living under the oppression of a foreign government, and here's this guy who has control over all of creation. You would expect that his next command would be something like this. Hey, Peter, here's what I need you to do. I need you to get another group of fishermen, and uh, there's a Roman garrison nearby. and Here's how we're going to deal with them. Uh, Peter, here's the kind of espionage I need you to, to engage in. And can you find some guys who are going to be like-minded? And then we got to find some people who have some position. I mean, I know we're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but we got to find some folks in positions of power so when we have this revolution, we can go ahead and bring in uh, this new government and we can actually have the Davidic throne restored to Israel. But Jesus says, no. Peter, your mission is not to overthrow governments. Your mission is to recover people. Being the Messiah is not about the socio-political expectations. Being the Messiah is about restoring God's people to God himself. And so that's one of the defining characteristics of this community. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't care about what goes on within our society. It doesn't mean we don't have a voice in particular social issues or in uh, issues related to our community. It doesn't mean that we're not concerned, for example, when we read about the kinds of books that are now going into our library. No, we want to stand up and we want to be heard on those things. But we do understand that that's not our primary mission. Our primary mission is to declare that through the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are lost are now found. That the God who created you, with whom you are alienated because of your sin, that relationship can be restored. There's forgiveness for your sin. You can be recovered. And again, it doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your position within society. No, Jesus makes it clear that the defining characteristic of this community is that we're going to be those who are set and who strive to see people recovered. Not the overthrow of governments, not the bringing about of great societal change, but rather to let them know that peace with God is available through the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder then uh, how upset some of our evangelical forefathers are. I mean, I think if you can be angry in heaven, I've argued for a long time that the Wesley brothers and Martin Luther are fit to be tied. I also think that my late friend Carl Henry and Billy Graham are probably fairly upset. For the movement that bore their name, the movement that was set on both theological recovery and also the recovering of people through the work of Dr. Graham, has in some ways become nothing more uh, than a vehicle to argue for what we would call traditional family values or to stump for one particular political party. Friends, that's not the kind of community that Jesus sought to create. Jesus doesn't fit very well in either party. And again, the gospel is for everyone, not just for those who vote like we do, or who have the same traditional family values that we hold. Our task as a community is to see people recovered. Fourthly, then, we leave it all behind. We leave it all behind. Verse 11 says so much. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, there's a whole lot that's not there, right? We would expect they bring their boats to land and immediately they go to market and they sell all their fish. Doesn't say that, does it? They left everything. So they're going to go they're going to sell this great haul of fish and probably they're going to buy bigger boats or uh, they're going to add on to the house or they're going to do any number of things and then they're going to go and they're going to be isn't it great look the lord has given me and they're going to have they're going to put license plates on their boats that say blessed. It's not what it says is it? And when they had brought their boats to land they left everything and followed him you see being a part of this community is not in some way shape or form an add-on to the life that you already have i have these goals for my life i'm not quite attaining them i need jesus to come and help me well yes you do but that's not being a christian being a christian is summed up for us in verse 11 They left everything and followed him. It is interesting, isn't it, in the Bible, the analogy that's most often used and the relationship that's used to picture the relationship between Jesus and the church is that of marriage. And so I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking about, uh, and it was a long time ago, so thankfully there are pictures so I can remember some of it, uh, because I had hair And was thinner. I won't say thin. I'll say thinner. But Amy and I came back from our honeymoon in Charleston. And we were both tan, And it was great. And we were young. And there was nobody was bold. It was fabulous. How weird would it have been if when we returned back from that, Amy said, hey, okay, uh, I'm going to go back to my parents' house. I'll see you this weekend. I mean, we were living in Louisville at the time. And to be honest, the house that I brought her home to was not near as nice as her parents' house. I could kind of cook. She could not cook at all. My late mother-in-law could cook. just She was a phenomenal cook. So I, if Amy said, hey, look, the food's better, the accommodations are better, uh, I don't have to listen to you snore, it's better all the way around, I'm going to go home. see on the weekends? What if it had been like it was when we were engaged? See, I think lots of us feel like that's what our relationship with Jesus should be like. We fail to understand that Jesus' call to this community transforms every bit of our life and our vocation. We want to date Jesus but we don't necessarily want to be married to him. Well, in this community, a mark of belonging to this community is we leave everything behind. And one of the reasons that we do that is because the Bible tells us that Jesus did exactly the same thing. That Jesus, who had known nothing but endless community and fellowship between the members of the Godhead, he left the glory that was heaven, and he humbled himself and he came here. See, in order for Jesus to redeem this community, he had to leave everything. And so being a part of, of, of that community means that we leave it all behind. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is calling everybody to go be a full-time vocational evangelist. But it does mean that we understand that that all these things that we like and these things that we love and these things that we cling to, sometimes they're not blessings. Sometimes they're actually a hindrance. And being part of this community means that we're willing to leave those things behind. And we do so because Jesus did. And why did he do it? Did he do it so that he could come to earth and everybody would form these great crowds and they would acknowledge how wonderful he is and how great he is? I mean, that happened. Did he do it so that as he entered into Jerusalem, people could wave palm branches and and proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? That happened, but that's not why he came. No, he came in order to accomplish what we are here this morning going to celebrate. He left the glory of heaven so that his body could be broken and his blood could be shed. He left the glory of heaven to make real the promise that God made in his covenant with Abraham. When the Spirit of God passed between the bodies, the carcasses of the dead animals and said, Abraham, if you break the covenant, It'll be like this to me. Well, that's great, but you can't kill the spirit. Jesus came to earth in order that God would be, as one of my professors used to say, that God would be death eligible. And so this morning as we come to the table, we remember that this community that we are a part of is defined by leaving these things behind because the one who formed the community, Left all behind for his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we have such a we have such a weird relationship with our stuff. Like on the one hand, we we do like to. You know, on the, on, we want the vanity plate on our new car that says blessed. And yet at the same time, we forget that so often our stuff is a hindrance and not an aid to being one of your followers. Uh, Father, help us to, in the coming week, reflect upon these characteristics. Help us to, in the coming week, examine ourselves with the help of your Spirit And Lord, take stock of where we are and where we need to, to repent. And to turn away from those things that so, as Paul says, that so easily entangle us. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.